Part two, chapter twenty of the Fur Country. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Fur Country by Jules Verne, chapter twenty, in the offing. Victoria Island was now floating in the widest part of Bering Sea, six hundred miles from the nearest of the Aleutian Islands and two hundred miles from the nearest land, which was on the east. Supposing no accident happened, it would be three weeks at least before this southern boundary of Bering Sea could be reached. Could the island last so long? Might it not burst open at any moment, subject as it was to even now the constant action of tepid water, the mean temperature of which was more than fifty degrees Fahrenheit? Lieutenant Hobson, pressed on the construction of the raft as rapidly as possible, and the lower framework was already floating on the lagoon. McNab wished to make it as strong as possible, for it would have a considerable distance to go to reach the Aleutian Islands, unless they were fortunate enough to meet with a whaler. No important alteration had lately taken place in the general configuration of the island. Reconnaissance were taken every day, but great caution was necessary, as a fracture of the ground might at any moment cut off the explorers from the rest of the party. The wide gulf near Cape Michael, which the winter had closed, had reopened gradually, and now ran a mile inland, as far as the dried-up bed of the little river. It was probable that it was soon to extend to the bed itself, which was, of course, of little thickness, having been hollowed out by the stream, should it do so, the whole district between Cape Michael and Port Barnett, bounded on the west by the river bed, would disappear. That is to say, the colonists would lose a good many square miles of their dominion. On this account, Hobson warned everyone not to wander far, as a rough sea would be enough to bring about the dreaded catastrophe. Soundings were, however, taken in several places, with a view to ascertaining where the ice was thickest, and it was found that, near Cape Bathurst, not only was the layer of earth and sand of greater extent, which was of little importance, but the crust of ice was thicker than anywhere else. This was a most fortunate circumstance, and the holes made in sounding were kept open, so that the amount of diminution in the base of the island could be estimated every day. This diminution was slow but sure, and making allowances for the unfortunate fact that the island was drifting into warmer waters, it was decided that it was impossible for it to last another three weeks. The next week, from the 19th to the 25th May, the weather was very bad. A fearful storm broke over the island, accompanied by flash after flash of lightning and peals of thunder. The sea rose high, lashed by a powerful northwest wind, and its waves broke over the doomed island, making it tremble ominously. The little colony were on the watch, ready on an emergency to embark in the raft, the scaffolding of which was nearly finished, and some provisions and fresh water were taken on board. Rain heavy enough to penetrate the ice-crust fell in large quantities during this storm, and melted it in many places. On the slopes of some of the hills the earth was washed away, leaving the white foundations bare. These ravines were hastily filled up with soil to protect the ice from the action of the warm air and rain, and, 
but for this precaution the soil would have been everywhere perforated. Great havoc was caused amongst the woods by this storm. The earth and sand were washed away from the roots of the trees, which fell in large numbers. In a single night, the aspect of the country between the lake and the former Port Barnett was completely changed. A few groups of birch-trees and thickets of firs alone remained, a fact significant of approaching decomposition, which no human skill could prevent. Every one knew and felt that the ephemeral island was gradually succumbing. Every one, except Thomas Black, who was still gloomily indifferent to all that was going on. On the 23rd of May, during the storm, the hunter Sabine left the house in the thick fog and was nearly drowned in a large hole, which had opened during the night on the site formerly occupied by the principal house of the factory. Hitherto, as we are aware, the house, three-quarters submerged, and buried beneath a mass of earth and sand, had remained fixed in the ice-crust beneath the island. But now the sea had evidently enlarged the crevice and the house, with all it contained, had sunk to rise no more. Earth and sand were pouring through this fissure, at the bottom of which surged the tempest-tossed waves. Sabine's comrades, hearing his cries, rushed to his assistance, and were just in time to save him, as he was still clinging to the slippery walls of the abyss. He escaped with a ducking, which might have had tragic consequences. A little later, the beams and planks of the house, which had slid under the island, were seen floating about in the offing, like the spars of a wrecked vessel. This was the worst the evil storm had wrought, and would compromise the solidity of the island yet more, as the waves would now eat away the ice all around the crevice. In the course of the 25th May, the wind veered to the northeast, and although it blew strongly, it was no longer a hurricane. The rains ceased, and the sea became calmer. After a quiet night, the sun rose upon the desolate scene. The lieutenant was able to take the bearings accurately, and obtained the following result. At noon on the 25th of May, Victoria Island was in latitude 56 degrees, 13 minutes, and longitude 170 degrees, 23 minutes. It had therefore advanced at great speed, having drifted nearly eight hundred miles since the breaking up of the ice set it free in Bering Strait two months before. The great speed made the lieutenant once more entertain a slight hope. He pointed out the Aleutian Islands on the map to his comrades and said, "'Look at these islands. They are not now two hundred miles from us, and we may reach them in eight days.' Eight days?' repeated Long, shaking his head. Eight days is a long time.' I must add, continued Hobson, that if our island had followed the hundred and sixty-eighth meridian, it would already have reached the parallel of these islands. But in consequence of a deviation of the bearing current, it is bearing in a southwesterly direction. The lieutenant was right. The current seemed likely to drag the islands away from all land, even out of the sight of the Aleutian Islands, which only extend as far as the hundred and seventieth meridian. Mrs. Barnett examined the map in silence. She saw the pencil mark which denoted the exact spot then occupied by the island. The map was on a large scale, and the point representing the island looked but a speck upon the vast expanse of the Bering Sea. She traced back the route by which the island had come to its present position, 
marvelling at the fatality, or rather the immutable law, by which the currents had borne it along, had avoided all land, shearing clear of islands and never touching either continent, and she saw the boundless Pacific Ocean, towards which she and all with her were hurrying. She mused long upon this melancholy subject, and at last exclaimed suddenly, "'Could not the course of the island be controlled? Eight days at this pace would bring us to the last island of the Aleutian group.' "'Those eight days are in the hands of God,' replied Lieutenant Hobson gravely. "'We can exercise no control upon them. "'Help can only come to us from above. "'There is nothing left for us to try.' "'I know, I know,' said Mrs. Barnett. "'But heaven helps those who help themselves. "'Is there really nothing we can do?' "'Hobson shook his head doubtfully. "'His only hope was in the raft, "'and he was undecided whether to embark every one on it at once.' contrive some sort of sail with claws, etc., and try to reach the nearest land, or to wait yet a little longer. He consulted Sergeant Long, McNab, Ray, Marbre, and Sabine, in whom he had great confidence, and all agreed it would be unwise to abandon the island before they were obliged. The raft, constantly swept as it would be by the waves, could only be a last resort, and would not move at half the pace of the island still driven towards the south by the remains of the ice-wall. The wind generally blew from the east, and would be likely to drift the raft out into the offing, away from all land. They must still wait, then, always wait, for the island was drifting rapidly towards the Aleutians. When they really approached the group, they would be able to see what it would be best to do. This was certainly the wisest course to take. In eight days, if the present speed were maintained, the island would either stop at the southern boundary of Bering Sea, or be dragged to the southwest, to the waters of the Pacific Ocean, where certain destruction awaited it. But the adverse fate, which seemed all along to have followed the hapless colonists, had yet another blow in store for them. The speed on which they counted was now to fail them, as everything else had done. During the night of the 26th May, the orientation of the island changed once more, and this time the results of the displacement were extremely serious. The island turned half round, and the icebergs still remaining of the huge ice-wall, which had shut in the northern horizons, were now on the south. In the morning, the shipwrecked travellers, what name could be more appropriate, saw the sun rise above Cape Eskimo instead of above Port Barnett. Hardly a hundred yards off rose the icebergs, rapidly melting, but still of considerable size, which till then had driven the island before them. The southern horizon was now partly shut in by them. What would be the consequences of this fresh change of position? Would not the icebergs now float away from the island, with which they were no longer connected? All were oppressed with a presentiment of some new misfortune, and understood only too well what Calais meant when he exclaimed, "'This evening we shall have lost our screw!' By this Calais meant that the icebergs, being before instead of behind the island, would soon leave it, and as it was they which imparted to its rapid motion, in consequence of their very great draught of water, their volume being six or seven feet below the sea-level for every one above." They would now go on without it, impelled by the submarine current, 
whilst Victoria Island, not deep enough in the water to come under the influence of the current, would be left floating helplessly on the waves. Yes, Calais was right. The island would then be like a vessel, with disabled masts and a broken screw. No one answered the soldier's remark, and a quarter of an hour had not elapsed before a loud cracking sound was heard. The summits of the icebergs trembled, large masses broke away, and the icebergs, irresistibly drawn along by the submarine current, drifted rapidly to the south. End of chapter 20